0: Well, as we've been getting ready to do, to enter into the life of studying the life of David uh, through the course of looking at First and Second Samuel, uh, we, we are here finally after three weeks of looking at the first 15 chapters to give us kind of a, a preface of three weeks to give us a context of what is going on in this book before we dive into the life of David. Uh, you would have to have lived under a rock in Western civilization if you didn't know and s- who David was in some way, shape, or form, right? One of the most famous pieces of artwork in the history of Western civilization is David, uh, that great statue. David is central. Uh, character in the Bible and he's central character in the Old Testament. If you were just simply to look at the space that is devoted to him, there is not a single man in all of the Old Testament who gets more attention in time than David does. Abraham, the father of of Israel, uh, the people of Israel, had 14 chapters devoted to him. Elijah had 10 chapters devoted to him. David has 66 chapters In the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures devoted to him. He is mentioned some 600 times within the Old Testament and another 60 times in the New Testament. He is bright in the course of the Old Testament and throughout scripture. In fact, he is one of the last characters. In fact, he is indeed the last character mentioned in scripture. In Revelation 22 verse 16, it says this, that Jesus says, I am the offspring of David, the morning star. And to this day, the flag that flies over the nation of Israel is called the what? The star of David. This is, David is a remarkable man. And we hope to learn much from this remarkable man whom God said he is a man after my own hearts. And so 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we first meet David in Scripture. The story of David is found in this book of Samuel. Now Samuel, as we've stated before, is two, uh, one book with two parts, First and Second Samuel. And First Samuel, if you were to give a theme to it, the theme is this, is the search for a worthy king. The search of a worthy king. That Hannah, in her song after God's provision for her of a son, and the, the song that she sings in First Samuel chapter 2, sings of a king, an anointed one, who would come and who would make the poor rich, and who would give away his wealth and his power in order to make much of those who are poor and little. And so at the beginning of this chapter is where we see David introduced. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read through verse 13 this morning. Hear God's words. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? You have to remember in the previous chapter, what's the last time we saw Samuel? He was hacking Agag to pieces, just to give you a sense of to why they're trembling. Okay, And verse 5, and he said, Peaceably I have come to the sacrifice of the Lord, to consecrate, so consecrate yourselves. I come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees... And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we see in First Samuel chapter 16, at the very beginning, that um, while this is the, the passage that introduces us to great David, that it does not begin well. It begins with a grieving Samuel, and it's, Samuel has been grieving what appears to be not for a short period of time, but for a very long time. He thought, and he longed for, that Saul would be the king that his mother sang about, it's like Saul would be the king who would care for the poor and would use his power to serve others. And yet Saul has turned out to be a king like the nations. And so Samuel has been grieving, and he's been grieving for a long time. And perhaps Samuel is crying out before the Lord and asking the kind of questions that we ought to be asking today, that are not actually foreign to us if we care about what's going on in the world, asking questions like, "Where are all the good men?" That's not just the single ladies that ask that question. <laughs> Where are all the good leaders? Where are they? Where is the good king? Where are the good presidents? And the, Yes, even the good dictators. Those who are those monarchs that would rule well. This is not an issue that is simply an issue of 2,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago. This is an issue for today. There was a guy named uh, Muhammad Bouazizi. You may have never heard of him. Maybe you are familiar with him if you know the Middle East and what has gone on there the last seven to eight years. Muhammad Bouazizi lived in Tunisia. He was a 27-year-old vegetable cart vendor. He had done it for seven years, simply selling vegetables on the streets in Tunisia. And it produced just enough livelihood for him to provide for him and his family of eight. He didn't have great aspirations for his life. His great goal was this, is to be able to buy his own vegetable carts. And own his own vehicle. He was simply a hard-working man. But one day, as happens in corrupt countries, where the police often are the greatest system of injustice, is one of the police people came up to him and confiscated his vegetable cart for seemingly no reason. And it happened that he would go he went down to the police department and in seeking, he was going to pay his fine. but the policewoman who actually confiscated his cart would not let him pay the fine and said that he would not get his vegetable cart back now, if you take a man 's vegetable cart in that place, this is you 're essentially taking his what his livelihood, his means of income you 're taking his business now, in a random act of injustice, this police person has taken his carts. And so he went to the judicial authorities to appeal his case, and the response, instead of acting on it, was to laugh at him. They didn't give him the time of day. They told him he was never going to get his cart back. He needed to give it up and go find something else to do. And so what did he do? In this face of this act of gross systemic injustice, he walked out into the street, he doused his body with gasoline, and lit himself on fire. And this part what became the tunisian revolt and within 3 weeks the dictator who had ruled over tunisia for 21 years had been ousted for office why because one man said enough we need better leaders than this. This has to stop. And in fact, this began what became known as what? The Arab Spring. It started with Tunisia and then it moved to Egypt where they stood in the square day in and day out. And what do they demand? We demand worthy leadership. We desperately needed in our own country, worthy leaders, men of character. You know, a couple years back, um, it was reported in the military, one particular year they had over 26,000 cases of sexual assault. That was just the reported cases within the United States military. Now, that's bad, but what was even worse was when the study was done as to what was going on and why there was so much injustice in regards to the response to this, it was found that the very people in the military who were assigned to investigating sexual result were the very perpetrators who were committing these acts. We long for worthy leadership. God says to Samuel, this is what Samuel's crying about, that we long, where are the good men? Where is the king who will not use his power to abuse? Where is the king who will use his wealth to lift up the poor? God says, listen, he comes to Samuel. What's the first thing he tells him? It's an interesting phrase here that he tells Samuel. He said, I will provide for myself that man. You see, the approach that Israel is taking, remember, Israel was the one who demanded a king. And God said, you want a king? i in the UK. You can have the king of your choosing. And they chose Saul through Samuel's leadership. He was a man who looked good. He had great appearance. And in fact, well, the, the theme that we're going to see throughout chapter 16 is this word. It comes from the word uh, Hebrew, ra'ah, is the root word. It's the root word that is under this word, provide, when God says, I will provide for myself a king. It is the word under this word, look, when God says he looks upon the heart. It's the root word under the word, see, or I, appearance, This word comes up some 12 or 13 times within the process of moving through chapter 16. And God says to Samuel, I see. I am the one who will look. I am the one who will provide the man that you need. It's almost like our idiomatic phrase, this word to see, in the way they translate it to provide. Because what it actually kind of means is this, is I will see to it. In other words, God's saying to Samuel, you're crying out and asking, where are all the good men? Where are the leaders? Where is the good king that we so desperately need? And it's as if God's coming to Samuel and saying, I'll see to it. I got this one. You had the last one. I got this one. I got this one. So the Lord is going to provide for the good man. The Lord will see to it. And so we were looking for a man who would lead When we're seeking for good leadership and the type of men that would lead in this way, God says, I will provide it. And here's how he shows he's going to provide it for us in this text. Four points we're going to walk through this morning. God first provides the king that we need by looking to the heart or seeing to the heart. Seeing to the heart. The classic verse in this text, the most famous verse is what? That, that central passage there where God comes to Samuel and says, I don't look at the, man looks at the outward, but I look at the heart. Here's what happens. Here's the account I was going to, try to explain it to you. Samuel goes, God comes to Samuel and says, I want you to go anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God, we've already got a king. He's not a very good one, but we got one. And if I go and anoint a new king, that's not usually going to be very good for my health. And so God says, I got that. We'll go ahead and have some sacrifices. Trust me. And so Samuel goes to this obscure little village called Bethlehem. And you'll notice in the text it says, right, there's four elders who come out. And they're concerned about Samuel's presence because Samuel's not one for small talk. When Samuel shows up, it means something significant is about to happen. But he's here to anoint a king. And so Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event and then he sets aside Jesse's family, and he asks Jesse to bring his, his sons in front of him so that he might select the one to whom he will anoint, and God's going to show him the one he ought to anoint. And who's the first one who moves forward? Who, who comes out first? Well, of course, Jesse brings out his firstborn, his strapping firstborn son, Eliab. Man, Eliab's a stud. Eliab's great. Eliab, man, Eliab means Hebrew for you the man. That, no, that's not actually true, but that's pretty much what he, how his picture should hear. He, Eliab, he's the quarterback of the football team. Eliab's 6'3", 225. He's chiseled. He walks in the room, and he dominates it. Everybody wants to be Eliab. His daddy loves Eliab. Eliab fits the bill of what a king should look like. He's tall. He's good-looking. He's strong. Remember in those days what they want in the king? What do they need in the king? They need someone who's going to lead them out in battle. And in an era when you don't have a gun, where the smallest man on the field can take out the largest man in the field with a gun, you need a guy who can wield an enormous sword. right? What's the, the, at every men's retreat, college men's retreat, what's the movie that they show or they reference? Bravehearts. And why is the man who leads that movie in Braveheart, William Wallace, such a, a stirring leader? Why is he put in charge? Because he's enormous. In fact, we actually have the, um, the sword that William Wallace had. It was five foot six inches long, and William Wallace himself was six foot five. Now, you have to remember, at this point, the average man is about five six. This is an enormous guy. And if you're, in a, and if you're five, doing a battle when you're six five with that wingspan and a five six sword that you can swing, no one else can get near you. He can take out everybody, he can just mow them down. This is the leader that you would look for. And Jesse says, Jesse says, here's Eliab. He's my boy. He's the man. Here's the man you've been looking for. And all the elders of the town says, yeah, Eliab's the boy. He's the man. And Samuel looks at him and says, oh, oh, Eliab, you're the man. And God says, oh, that ain't the man. That ain't the man. Samuel looks at him, and he's looking at the external appearances, and he's saying, surely this is the Lord's anointed who stands before me. But then the Lord comes to Samuel and says, no, 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 you're looking like a man looks. I look at the heart. You look, people look, mankind looks at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is the first thing we see. If God is in his provision for us of the king that we need, is God's going to provide us a king by doing so, first and foremost, by looking at the heart of the king. Not at outward appearances. God is not concerned with outward appearances, God is concerned ultimately with the heart. Are you? The heart speaks to, in the Bible speaks of, um, it's the, 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 the um, machine, the, 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 the uh, headquarter room of the, of, the, of the life of a man. It's your affections. It's what moves you and drives you. It's your, the place of your ultimate desires. In short, your heart is talking about your character. See in scriptures that the heart matters, right? Because out of the heart is comes the rest of your life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks what is already going on inside. Out of a heart comes good fruit or bad fruit. Your heart is the most important thing about you. What is your character like? You know, it's interesting. There's a great scene at the beginning of Evan, the beginning of Evan Almighty. And any guys who are getting into their 30s and 40s and 50s and you're beginning to have hair that props up in weird places, you totally understand the scene. Because the first five minutes of the scene of Evan Almighty is Steve Carell doing nothing, but he takes about 10 different approaches to get rid of his nose hair. And he spends about an hour taking care of his appearance and making sure that he looks really good because he's a politician. We are people who really care about our appearance. At least some of us do. Some of you we'd appreciate a little bit more work. <laughs> but ultimately, that is... Here's the question. How much time... If you, if you spend even the most basic taking a shower, brushing your teeth, putting clothes on, which we appreciate, and heading, grooming yourself in the most basic ways, you're going to spend what? 30 minutes in a morning? And yet, how many of you spend even 30 minutes working on your character, your heart, sitting before the Lord and saying, God, would you change my heart? We as a society... We are appearance obsessed. In fact, I don't think there's a society ever in history that's ever been as obsessed as we are is about physical beauty. We think about our physical appearance more than any other group ever. It's all we think about and talk about, it's what we our magazines are about, it's what social media is about, and this is killing us. It's corrosive to our hearts and our souls. And I don't want you to go into it because you've read there's a, a lot of research, but it's incredibly corrosive in the way in which we appear and look at human beings because of this. You know what pornography is? Pornography is merely seeing the person their value by their outward appearance. We are an outwardly obsessed culture. You know, in 2008, there were 12 million cosmetic procedures. 12 million, and I'm sure that number's probably doubled by now. In 2007, there was $12.4 billion spent on cosmetic enhancements. People are hired for their appearance. Some people are overlooked for their appearance. And by the way, we are, we are in fact, so much so, we are so externally obsessed, we're now seeing, though, a pendulum swing, right? It used to be we we're externally obsessed by those who are bold and beautiful and attractive and, and 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 strong. Now it's this, we're still obsessed with externals, except now it's like, love me despite the fact that I'm overweight. I don't care what you think about me. Now it's interesting, even in the midst of this kind of ethos, this verbiage that says something like this, don't tell me I have... Need to lose weight. Don't tell me I need to look better. I'm I am, I am perfectly great in the way I look. Now, what's the focus still on? Where are we still finding our value there? On the externals. On the externals. The Bible says don't look on the external appearance. You know, it's interesting. David, you know, is David an ugly dude? No, what's it say? He's ruddy and he's beautiful. What's the Bible making a point of? It's listen, it's not about whether you're beautiful on the outside or ugly on the outside. It's about what's going on at your heart level. We are obsessed with talents and gifts and abilities, the external things. And yet, and we think, for some reason, have these things helped us fix our, fix our broken worlds? Has all of our enhancements of our beauty and our gifts and our abilities helped? You know. Do we look at it and go, you know what, the dysfunction in our families, if we just looked a lot better, that would really solve the dysfunction in our families. If, if, we, if we just had a few, little bit more ability, then we could take care of all injustice in this world. No, it's what is missing in this world is a heart that has good character. First Corinthians 13 says this, if you have faith to move mountains and you have gifts beyond measure, but you have not love, then what? you are nothing. You are nothing. The heart matters. Now, God says the body matters too, right? God gives great dignity and value to external things. Far more, actually, dignity and value than we give to the physical things. But God said we have to put the body and appearance in its appropriate place. And appearance and the external things are not what is ultimate, But because of our obsession on externals, we ignore what is truly consequential about human beings and about about ourselves. One scholar actually said this, that there are many things wrong with pornography, but there is a cosmic or culture-wide problem with pornography. What porn does is habituate the viewer with the less consequential about a human being. We are being trained to not even think about what is going on inside of a person. And we are at an airport, and you're a shopping mall, and someone you're sitting around with, uh, if you're with a bunch of guys, and an attractive woman walks by, no one ever says, Wow, look at all that character. We are training ourselves to think merely about the external. But the heart, God says, is what matters. It is what matters most. Saul, remember this? Saul had all the good looks. Saul had all the height. He was stronger than everyone else, and yet he did not have a heart for God, and so he was a failure as a king. And Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil, but God said, God said, I will provide the king that we need, and I will start by not looking at the appearance, but by looking at the heart. See, God says this. I mean, actually, when He removes, when He first communicates to Saul that He's being rejected as king, it's in 1 Samuel chapter thirteen, verse fourteen. And as God had rejected Saul, and would point for Himself, He says, "I will appoint for myself a man who what? A man who is after my own heart." God is going to provide us a king. He does so first and foremost by looking at the heart of the man. The second thing. We see that God does in providing for us a king, a leader, the man that we need, is God selects the forgotten one. God selects the forgotten one. He provides for us the man we need by selecting the forgotten ones. You know, it's an interesting story. Seven boys are brought in front of Samuel. Seven. And the narrative builds a sense of anticipation, right, right? We have the three brothers who are named, and then with the rest of them, it's like all seven come before him. And nope, not, not that guy. Nope, not that guy. Nope, not that guy. And literally, Samuel comes to, to, or to Jesse and says, uh, you got any more sons? Is this all you got? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, I have the youngest. Now, literally in the Hebrew, that word the youngest means "runt." It means the weakest one. It means the, the son who is inconsequential. It means the lowly son. I want you to see where this is, this is borne out. David says he has eight sons. There is this great monumental event. They're going to sacrifice Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, is in town. And yet, he, uh, Jesse invites all seven of his sons except for who? The last one. Jesse has forgotten his last son. He is inconsequential to him. In fact, one scholar says that David is almost like an ancient Near Eastern male Cinderella. That he is viewed as by the rest of the family as simply out to work with the sheep. You know, those who work with the sheep were the ones who were considered the most lowly. This is the job that was given to kind of thieves and lowlifes. And this is the job that is given to David to be out with the sheep. He is forgotten by his own father. But you know what? This is a pattern that fits within all of the Old Testament. In fact, all of the scripture. That God loves to choose the lowly ones. David is treated as if he could do good for nothing but menial work. But this is who God chooses. You see, God is always reversing the way the world thinks. The world says, this is our standard. We want the firstborn son. It's called the, the process of primogeniture. That the firstborn son was thought to he got all of the father's wealth and all the father's strength and all the father's blessing. And yet what do we see? God is constantly taking the youngest son and giving him the blessing. Jacob and Esau, who gets the blessing? It's Jacob. Cain and Abel, who gets the blessing? It's Abel. It's not Ishmael, but it's Isaac. It's always the younger son, it seems like. And who who is it that God puts in his line throughout Scripture? Who is it that are the mothers of Jesus? It's always the lowly women. Not the, the, high, the women who are married to the powerful men, but it's the lowly women. It's the women who are barren, the women who are looked beyond. It's the Leah's, and it's the Tamar's, and it's the Ruth's who are put in David's line. It's the sexually immoral. It's the prostitutes. It is these to whom the forgotten ones, the lowly ones, that God chooses to bring in. Now again, we see God, God has a strange and refreshing way. He does not look with the eyes that man looks with. He does not bend to human standards. He creates his own standard. And again, we see how Yahweh chooses the most unlikely of people to bring his grace into the world. So here's what I want you to understand this and think about this. You might be thinking there, I am inconsequential. I am lowly. I have limited gifts. I am too much of a sinner to be used by God, to be a chosen one by God. Let me tell you something that's exactly the group that God likes to choose from. It's the lowly ones, the outcast ones. You know, it's the world, the church in this world is predominant. is dominated. The ones who are bringing the great amount of effect for the kingdom of God, it's dominated by the lowly and the weak and the poor. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, that God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know why you're in... God's family, because you're weak. And that's who God loves to choose. God loves to use the forgotten and the ordinary and the plain. Why? Because it makes his glory known in this world. Because with the weak, no, they're weak. The poor are those who know they are poor, right? Spiritual poverty, to say you are poor in spirit is to know that you need something, that you need a spiritual revival, and it's to say this is who God chooses. Why? Because it's these people who God, who lean on God more fully. You see, D- David, David is, is Israel's king. He's going to write a psalm. It's called Psalm 23. And how does he refer to himself and his relationship to God? He says, the Lord is my Shepherd, which means David is the what? David is the sheep. Now, what do we know about sheep? Are sheep brilliant? No, sheep are idiots. Sheep will put their nose down and eat and eat and eat, right themselves off a cliff. Sheep do this thing called um, casting. It's when they, they, they fall down in such a way, they're on their back and they're like, you ever seen a beetle? You flip a beetle over and its legs are just kind of flailing in the air. Sheep will literally die because if they get flipped over, they can't turn themselves back over. That's the kind of weakness that sheep have. If sheep survive, it's because of a shepherd. It's because of a good shepherd. And this is how David is describing himself. You see, the good leaders are those who know that they're poor, who know that they're weak, and it's these leaders who God loves to choose. David saw himself as a sheep, and he never got over that, not even when he was king. And so he it was a king who relied significantly, far more than, than Saul. He embraced his sheepliness, his weakness, and his lowliness. And it's that kind of man that God loves to choose. It's the man that we need is the one who knows that he's humble, one who's weak and lowly. Second or third, we see who God and God in providing us the man that we need, the king that we need. God sends his spirit. God in providing the man we need is sending his spirit. It's possible, it's interesting. It's important to think in this because this would be an anti gospel way of thinking about this passage. Is that 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 Saul was just this really bad guy, and so that's why God rejected him. And then all these seven brothers of David, that they, they come before Samuel and God's looking at each of them going, yeah, they're just, these are just, God's looking at the heart and going, I just don't see much good things out of these guys' hearts. Well, listen, if you think that David's heart is much better, then you're going to be very surprised by some of the things we're going to find in the life of David. You know, in so many ways that David appears to be worse than Saul. David has an affair with one of his mighty men, men's wife, and then has that guy slaughtered. That's not a good day. That doesn't display a good heart on David's parts. You see what's going on here is God says, "I will choose for myself a man who is desperately needy, but I and a man I'm going to look to the heart, but what I'm also going to do is I'm going to have to change this man's hearts in order to make him the leader that I need him to be and the people need him to be." And so what does he do? At the very end, God says, "If you're going to be my king, he gives David something." The very end, verse 13, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Now, does it say that the Spirit of God kind of came on David every once in a while? Because David was mostly a good guy. And he just needed the Spirit every once in a while to give him a little boost into goodness. Is that what the answer is? No, the Spirit rushed on him. It says from that day forward. The Spirit moved into his life because David, in order to be a man who would actually become a man after God's own heart, who actually would have a heart of character, had to have his heart changed by the spirit of living gods. You see, God provides for us a king, and he does so by looking internally and looking at the forgotten places. But then he takes these people by his grace, the lowly people of this world, who he has chosen, but who aren't all that good, and he makes them beautiful. He changes them. He changes their heart and their appearance internally. David has to get to the Holy Spirit in order to become the king that God wants him to be. Now, it's interesting because we often balk at the way God is going to change our hearts. You know what the Spirit of God does in order to change us? When the Spirit of God invades our lives, you know, the Spirit of God points us and takes us in a couple of different places where we are experiencing this sanctifying work that creates heart character. Yet, definitely the, heart, the, the Spirit takes us to the Word of God, that's for sure. But here's the pattern we see consistently in the scriptures, is when the Holy Spirit rushes in, guess what happens next? The Spirit takes people into suffering. But the means of developing the heart and the character that God wants to have in this man, David, there's a reason why David must wait for seven and ten years before he becomes king of Israel, because God has some preparatory work to do in David. And what's that preparatory work? David, here's what I'm going to do. You're now the anointed king, but now what I want you to do is I want you to go back out with the sheep. And do the menial labor again. And learn to be a shepherd. Learn to be one who is tender and compassionate and who is caring. Learn to care. But what what else does God do? Oh, he gives him the spirit. Then what does he do? Oh, he makes Saul a raging lunatic. And he chases David all over the desert for some seven years. So that David is constantly under suffering and living in caves. He teaches David through solitude and through suffering. This is the way often God sanctifies us. You see, God is preparing his men, the lowly men of this world, the forgottenest men in this world, in silence and suffering. In silence and suffering, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's doing work through the difficult places in your life. So do not despise the menial labor God has given you. Don't despise changing diapers. And don't despise that menial work and that job, that low place that you may have in your workplace. God is doing something in those places to change you, to make you into man that he longs for you to be. Now, I don't understand why God does it this way, but this is the way and the pattern he constantly uses. You see, where does David learn to speak to the Lord? Where does he learn to write all those psalms? Where does he even have time to write all those psalms? Because he's sitting out with the sheep, and he's bored. And so what does he do? He plays the harp, and he plays it really well, and he writes psalms. And he begins to write poetry. And where does David learn to, do, to become a warrior? In order to protect the sheep, he has to fight lions and bears. And what do we see that God calls David to in the very next chapter? To fight a, a giant. And what prepares him for that? It's this, the difficulty of watching over the sheep. This is what God is constantly doing. Listen, don't despise the small places that God is putting you. The leaders that God is developing in this world are often the ones who are out-of-the-way places, who are serving in faithful ways, but in the ways in which you may not actually see. Fourth and finally, so not only does God provide for us the man by looking ultimately at the heart, second, by calling the lowly one the forgotten ones, and third, by then taking those forgotten ones and making them beautiful in his sight, by the power of his spirit, through suffering and solitude. Lastly, we see that ultimately God is going to provide the man that we need by sending the son of David, by sending the son of David. You know, there's a a word here that's going to come up throughout the scriptures and it's going to be used all over the New Testament. When Samuel looks at Eliab at first, he says, Surely this is him. Surely this is the Lord's anointed now, the word anointed is the word mashiach in Hebrew. It's from the weird word that where we get what? Messiah. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. In other words, Samuel's looking at Eliab and saying, is this the Christ? Is this the Christ? It isn't Eliab. He's definitely not the Christ. And it also actually isn't David either. But it's actually David's son, his greater son to whom he points. You see, there is a, there's a deep connection that we're going to see throughout the story of David that david is constantly in who he is points to the fact that there is a greater david coming that there is a son of david who is coming and the parallels between this david and the david who's coming in the new son of david who's coming in the new testament are stark and, and clear there was another child of bethlehem wasn't there david is from where bethlehem and yet david is not allowed in because he's got a, he's not allowed into the line why because he's out with the sheep Where's Jesus born? Out with the sheep and the goats and the cattle. There was another one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was taken into solitude and suffering. We see this in Mark chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 3. Because when Jesus, when the Spirit comes down and hovers and rushes upon Jesus through a, as a dove, and G- God says about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." Please, what's the next thing that happens? It says the Spirit then leads him out into the deserts into to solitude and suffering, where he will not be chased around by Saul, but by, the, by Satan himself. And he will, he will carry it out completely. And Jesus was not just forgotten by his father like Jesus was, like, like David was. Jesus was actually forsaken by his father. So he says it on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what we see in this king, what I want you to see in Jesus, is we have the king that Hannah actually saw coming. We have the king that we actually need. We're the king is the one who would lift up the poor. We're we, the, the king who would actually use his wealth to make the poor rich. Who would actually use his power to care for the weak. This is the king that we need. The king who would serve the people as opposed to the first demand that they serve him. The king who ultimately accomplished this is not David. It's David's greater son, Jesus. It's David's greater son, Jesus. And the gospel is God overturning again our expectations for what we actually need in this world, because who is the firstborn of all creation? It says in Colossians, it's Jesus. And yet, what is the firstborn of all creation? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. What does He do? He gives up the wealth of heaven in order to what? Make you rich. He gives up His power so you might be, you who are the runts of this world might become strong. You see, we care about appearance, and yet we're so ugly inside. Jesus came and said, I will become ugly so that you might become beautiful inside. You know, Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2, when it points to the fact of who this Messiah is going to be, it says this, that he said that this Messiah would have no attractiveness. He would be ugly in the sight of man. And in fact, he was indeed ugly on the cross, but the most beautiful one lost his attractiveness Lost, removed, set aside his glory. Why? So that you who are spiritually ugly, whose heart is nasty, might be made beautiful by his sacrifice and by his righteousness. What kind of king do we need? Where are all the good men? The good man is found on a cross. The good man, where's the good king? The good king is found on a cross laying down his life for his people you know, about a hundred years ago, you know, the Armenian Church, Armenian Church, we pay hardly any attention to the Armenian people. The Armenian people have been kind of like Polish people have been just beaten up over the last the course of the last couple hundred years. About hundred years ago, the Turks were storming into Armenia and slaughtering the Armenian people, including Armenian Christians. And there was one particular account where they rode into a church and were killing all the Christians in a particular church. Literally, they rode into the church, tore down the doors, and rode into the church on their horses and were slashing and killing and were getting ready to burn down this church. And there was one particular Christian who was hiding in order, who was able to give this account? In which he heard one soldier ask one of the, another older soldier this question. You see, at the back of the church, there was a picture of Jesus on the cross, and this younger Turkish soldier is looking to this older Turkish soldier and says, "Who is that?" And the older Turkish soldier says, "This. That's their king. That's their god." And the younger soldier said, "That's crazy. What kind of king would lay down his life?" would die for people our king would our king would the good king that we long for and the good king that we need this is the one it's jesus you want to find the good man he's on a cross that he came off a cross and he was resurrected and now he reigns and rules over all things this is the king that hannah sang about and this is the king that samuel cried in his longing for is this king do you know that king are you looking forward? Is this the person do you look for for leadership in your life? Or are you trying to do it? Look to all the, 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 the great places of this world, to political power, to being a boss and having power yourself? You're looking for somebody who is just great in appearance? Now look to Jesus. Now, I want to end this way, because this has not been very applicable this morning, I don't feel like. At least I haven't driven it home much. But I want to ask this question. David is the man after God's own heart. We see that he becomes that man, not because he had it initially when God chose him and set him aside by grace, because God by his spirit did something within him. But I want you to see this. If you want to become a man after God's own heart like David is, you're going to have to be changed. and You actually have to be changed by the same realities that we see here. You see, you become a man after God's own heart when you realize that you have been chosen by God. Not because of your appearance and not because of your greatness, because you're a lowly one. You see, for the rest of his life, David will be a man who is of much grace. One of the reasons why God calls David a man after his own heart is because David is constantly showing graciousness even to his enemies. David at one point is going to have an opportunity to slaughter Saul, and he doesn't take it. Why? Because he says he is the Lord's anointed one. I will not touch my hands on him. Later, when David comes to power and all of Saul's family has been put to death except for one man who is a crippled, a lowly one named Mephibosheth, what will David do? David will invite Mephibosheth to his table. It's grace. See, when David is fleeing the city and because of his own son taking over the throne, and David's running from his son, there's going to be a man who's going to stand on the heights and curse David as he's leaving the city. And yet David, when he comes back in the city and has restored the power, says, do not touch that man. It's grace. It's grace. You want to become great? Then you have to become gracious. And it's only those, it's only those who have received grace to begin to develop that heart. David is a man who knows his strength comes from the Lord's. His strength comes from the Lord, not from his own power and his own might. Look at just some of the Psalms we see. David knows in Psalm chapter, what we're going to see next week, or in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's going to go out and he's going to fight Goliath. Now, how does David think he has the strength for that? It's because it's the last verse that we read here in verse 13. Because the spirit of the living God was giving him power. And David knows this. And he writes about this throughout his life. In Psalm 31 verses 3 through 4 it says this. He says, God, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake you lead me and guide you. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. And you are my refuge. In Psalm 51, David and he's crying out in the midst of his sin and his repentance. He's crying out. And the thing that he most wants is What? Joy and strength that comes from God's presence. He says, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is a man who knows where his power comes from, where his greatness comes from. It comes from the Lord. And Psalm 139 verses 7 through 12 I think is the most clear. Or if David says this, Where shall I go from your spirit, O Lord? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's in death, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely, the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you david is a man you want to be a man after god's own heart that you must learn to be a man who lives in reliance upon the strength of the lord that's who david is and david is the man who knows there is one coming who is the truly anointed one the truly great king who will save even him we'll end with this verse psalm chapter 18 verses 49 and 50 david writes this for i will praise you o lord among the nations And I will sing to your name. Why? Because great is your salvation that you bring to your king. And you show steadfast love to your anointed one, to David and to your offspring forever. What's David saying? You are my salvation. Ultimately, David knows I am not the salvation of the people of God. I am not the man that the Israel needs. Ultimately, the man that I need and the king that Israel needs is Jesus. David's heart for God, David's praise for God, David's joy and love for God came from the fact that he knew that there was a king who would come and lay down his life for him and save, yes, even him. And that's what we're going to do. The course of the next couple of months, we're going to look at the life of David and we're going to say, here's how David became a man after God's own heart. And here's how he displayed it, not by being great in and of himself, but time and time again, as we look to David's greater son, Jesus. That's the man that we need. And that's the man that God says, I got this one. I'll provide you a man. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are a people who are fickle. We are people who um, our response to life's challenges is to um, look to man's success, to look to man's approaches, because we are look on the outside. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you'd make us a humble people, a people who know that we're lowly, a people who know that we desperately need the Spirit of God, a people who don't look on the outward appearance but fall on our knees And say, God, I need you. I need you to be the man for me. I need you to be the one who provides for me. I need you to get this one. Because I don't got it. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would awaken us with that. Anoint us by your spirit so that time and time again, your spirit points us back to David's son, Jesus. That your spirit would drive us to him. I pray that that would be the truth of what happens here in the course of the next couple months. That we would be a people who see not only that Jesus is there in every part of scripture. That Jesus is everywhere in our lives. And that he is the one who we truly and ultimately need. And that like David we would be ones who cry out after you. That as he said in Psalm 27. That the greatest desire of our heart would be to be in your presence. Because you're the man that we need. You're the king that we need. Oh God reveal that to us. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.